Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you could redesign the human body, what would you do? On the Level Up Human podcast, we ask experts and our audience how they would change our species and let our comedian judges decide what upgrades to slot into our DNA. Our guests have included experts like Alice Roberts, Marcus DeSotoy and Dean Burnett, and comedians Zoe Lyons, Hugh Dennis and Paul Sinha. Level Up Human, the science comedy panel show souping up the homo sapien. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast episode 81. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week I would love to say that I need a break from politics, but thanks to recent events I'm worried that that now means I'd either have to secretly meet foreign officials or, even worse, have the foreign secretary tell everyone I was training journalists and then end up incarcerated. First up on last week's Wish You Weren't Here, Oh Now You're Not, is former International Development Secretary and budding Disney villain Priti Patel. The previous week's revelations that she had spent her private family holiday meeting Israeli officials were odd enough. I mean, does she do that every holiday? Has the family trip to Disney World involved Pretty lurking off to have departmental business chats with Mickey and Goofy? Did she leave the kids riding reindeer in Lapland while she chatted foreign aid funding with Father Christmas? But as well as that being strange, it was also revealed that Priti Patel's meetings happened not only without the knowledge of the Foreign Office, but not even the British Embassy in Israel, despite discussing with the Israeli Prime Minister and jingoistic chickpea Benjamin Netanyahu about giving more international aid to Israeli soldiers. Then Priti Patel revealed she'd had two more meetings with Israeli officials since her holiday in August, and I started to wonder if, hey, maybe it's an addiction problem she has and she needs help with. I mean, does she wake up first thing in the morning and meet an Israeli official? Can she not cope unless she secretly meets an Israeli official after every meal? Should someone stage an intervention? Well, luckily they did, as Prime Minister and winner of Best Dressed Icicle 2017, Theresa May, summoned her in the way only a master of dark arts could, and Priti boarded an earlier flight back than planned from her meeting in Nairobi, and all on taxpayers' expense. You're welcome. But she was there on work, not holiday, so I doubt it interrupted anything important. On her return, Pretty resigned from her post in the cabinet because, yes, Theresa May doesn't even have the wherewithal to sack any of her own cabinet ministers unless they do it themselves first. I'm pretty sure she's the sort of person who'd struggle to swat a mosquito away instead hoping it just decides it's had enough now or that it isn't a fan of chilled blood and then leaves of its own accord. 
The Jewish Chronicle then revealed that they had two sources that said May was aware of Patel's meetings all along. But to be fair, May doesn't really seem aware of almost anything else, so that would be impressive. And either way, with Patel resigning, the heat has been taken off what the cabinet may have been wanting from these stronger ties to Israel, so we'll never really know. After Michael Fallon leaving the week before and Priti Patel this past week, that's two cabinet ministers down in just eight days, leaving May with less of a useful cabinet and more of a broken storage box full of dysfunctional tat. Promoted to the post of International Development Secretary now is Penny Mordaunt, Conservative MP for Portsmouth North, and the sort of person who looks like she'd get on with Kirsty Allsop. Yeah, you know, that sort of person. Penny Mordaunt is the MP who made a speech in Parliament in 2014 about poultry welfare just to fulfil a bet with her Royal Navy colleagues involving her saying the word cock several times in the House of Commons, which, to be fair, is something that I've wanted to shout in that building quite a lot. But more concerning to her current post than her shouting cock is that in 2017 she insisted the UK was powerless in stopping Turkey joining the EU and then used that as a reason to Brexit, even though as part of the EU the UK could have totally stopped Turkey becoming the EU as it requires all member states agreeing and now the UK can't stop it joining the EU because it won't be part of the EU in the first place. Penny Mordaunt said that when she was armed forces minister during the Brexit referendum campaign but she either willingly lied at the time or she had absolutely no idea of the EU policy she was discussing and either way fouled up far worse than any speech she'd done on poultry welfare. Well, whichever it is, lying or a complete lack of rule knowledge, it does sound like she'll fit into what was formerly Pretty Patel's role very, very well. Meanwhile, Pretty herself will now be spending more time not going on holiday. Next on Wish They Weren't Here, but thanks to you they'll sadly be staying much, much longer than planned, is Foreign Secretary and Ars Blamange Boris Johnson, whose usual lack of awareness just highlights his own absence of conviction, but this time, sadly, it's increased the unfair conviction of someone else. North London charity worker Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe has now been imprisoned in Iran for a year and a half following her arrest while she was on holiday with her daughter. The Iranian government suspected her charity work was a front used to overthrow the government because, hey, nothing says secret usurper like everything on this rack is 50p. However, Johnson may now have upped her sentence by another five years because he told a parliamentary committee that she was simply teaching journalism as I understand it. Something that proves, A, he clearly doesn't understand anything as she was on holiday and not in the way Pretty Patel takes them, and B, teaching journalism is a serious crime in Iran, and so even if it was what she was doing, which it wasn't, why would you say it was and then endanger her more? Boris Johnson has now apologised for his comments ten full days after it happened, but the first thing he did was say that his remarks were taken out of context, something that's very hard to do when the full context was a sentence where he suggested Nazanin was teaching journalism and wasn't on holiday. Was there some hidden context somewhere? Did he have a bit of paper just saying not in his pocket? After that, Boris suggested it was the fault of foreign office officials rather than his own, and then he was backed up by disgraced MP Liam Fox of Disgrace, who just said, hey, it was just a slip of the tongue, because, you know, we've all had a slip of the tongue and landed someone in prison for five years, right, Liam? Though to be fair, Liam Fox's tongue is likely forked, so who really knows what his can do? And Boris also received support from the only person with even less conviction than Johnson himself to the extent that he stabbed Boris in the back and now seems to be behind him, possibly in a position so that he can do it again, Michael Gove. Gove suggested on the Mars show that perhaps Nazanin wasn't just there on holiday because, you know, he'd much rather ruin someone's life than the career of someone whose career he tried to ruin. Meanwhile, nothing is being done to help Nazanin, who is the person at 
actually in serious danger. And Nazanin's husband, Richard Radcliffe, has said that now neither he or Nazanin wants Boris to lose his position as Foreign Secretary, despite all of this, but that is mainly because Boris is now so intertwined in it all, it is in Johnson's best self-interest to do all that he can to get her free. Personally, I think Boris should offer a swapsies and say that he'll take Nazanin's place and bring her home. Though, sadly, he'd probably get released pretty quickly by the Iranian government as it's very clear that he'd have absolutely little to nothing to teach journalists and could barely organise a coup at a pigeon race. Brexit secretary and man entirely composed of the bits you have to pull off tangerines under the skin, David Davis, has said the government have conceded and the MPs will get a vote on the final Brexit deal with the EU. Woohoo! Except he's also said that if they reject the final deal, then we'll Brexit with no deal at all. Boo! I mean, what sort of a choice is that? You can choose if you'd like to die by being shot in the face, but if you say you don't want to die that way, I'll kill you with this sharpened spoon and then shoot you in the face. The EU has told the UK it has two weeks to decide on its final commitment in the deal or talks cannot continue, something that David Davis responded to in an interview on Sky News by laughing and then saying they definitely will have till December and it'll be fine. I'm more and more certain that he's just going to turn up to the next talks with nothing but some excuse about how the dog ate their agreement. Still, though, they are determined to press on without a clue, and Theresa May mentioned before this week's debate on the EU withdrawal bill that she would enshrine the date and time we leave the EU in law as 11pm on March 29th, 2019. Except at the rate the government are going, that just looks like it'll mean they'll not only be destroying all the country's future prospects, but now also breaking the law too by not being at all ready for it. I mean, what a weird feeling that'll be, eh? I mean, sadness at leaving, but then happiness at the government being courted off by the police as Big Ben bongs, if it's fixed by then. Oh, and to think with it being 11pm that we leave the EU, last orders will have already happened, so we won't even have booze to help. Oh, is there nothing good about this? Hello you, listeners old and new. Oh, I'm a poet, but I don't know it, except I do, and I really don't feel like I deserve that title after that crappy rhyme. Anyway, I hope you're doing well this chilly, chilly week. Um, I have been trying a new way of dealing with the endless news of the British government being morons, and that is to look at it all as though it's just a boost to everyone else's ego. I mean, you know how previously the idea was that you would look up to those elected to positions of power with the aim that they will deal with the complicated stuff and what a respected place that they're in. Well, now I'm pretending that society and everything has changed and so we've just chosen completely stupid idiots to pop on a pedestal so we can cheer ourselves up every day by thinking, wow, I'm glad I'm not as thick as the people in charge. I must be super smart. Thus, you know, just boosting general mental health for everyone and feel good vibes all over downtown. I mean, the downside is, of course, with this idea is that those idiots are still in charge of dealing with complicated stuff, which kind of ruins it. Mm, yeah, I'll keep thinking. Uh, how do you deal with it? Have you got any plans? I mean, if you have any sensible, um, or preferably for this podcast, completely not sensible methods of trying to find the positive in knowing that the last week's mayhem has been down to two top officials acting in a way that gets nursery kids told off, then please do let me know at all the usual messaging outlets that I mention far too many times on this show already. But yeah, thank you for listening to this as always. And this week, thanks to those of you who gave the show yet more reviews on iTunes, which is hugely appreciated. And you can do that as well if you would like. Yes, you. What do you mean you already did? No, not you. You've done it. Behind you. Yeah, that one. Yeah, you. You could do it. You too can review this podcast on any of your podcast apps using your preferred method of key pressing. Hey, sometimes nose is fun. You should try, but not when you have a cold, as that makes your screen really horrid and covered in snot. Um, and please do uh, give us a review 
you, um, us, by us, I mean me, this show. Give this show a review saying how much you enjoy listening. It is a big help. Um, also, if you can donate to helping this podcast be better tech and time-wise, please throw a quid or two to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or the Kofi uh, forward slash parpolbro site as it all does really, really help. Right, um, only bit of admin this week. Um, if you can come along, please remember I am doing my solo show, uh, Miserably Happy, uh, in London on Sunday, November the 19th. That's this coming Sunday. I really, really need some bums on seats for the filming of that show. So if you can come, or you're planning to come, or you know someone that can come, um, please buy the tickets in advance so um, we know it has enough people to go ahead. Uh, it is at 2 North Down in King's Cross, which is right by the station. Uh, it starts at 8.15pm. It should all be done by 9.15pm, possibly 9.20 if we're feeling cheeky um, but you'll be well in bed uh, nice and early on a school night and tickets are only £5 as well um, it is the last time I'm ever going to be doing this show uh, that I did at the Ed Fringe this year and got one really lovely review also one not so lovely review which I think means put together it's okay um, so please do come along uh, come along and watch and hear those jokes and you can grab tickets for that by searching for my name on tickettext.co.uk and I'm tweeting the link so regularly that I'm probably going to get reported for spam any day now so you can probably find it on there too. On this week's show, I am interviewing James Patrick for the second time. Uh, long-time listeners may remember back in episode 39 when we spoke about police cuts, and this time it's all about his new book, Alternative War, which, unlike alternative comedy, embraces the hack stuff, if anything. Uh, also, Brexit fallout returns. Yay, but also really boo. And of course, there is some of this. I don't know if you did, but I wore a poppy all of last weekend because mm, 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 I love heroin. I have made that joke on this podcast before because it is my favourite at this time of year. But personally, though, I am a subscriber to the view that the best way to honour the war dead is by not doing any more wars and actually taking care of those who fought in them. But hey, what do I know? I mean, maybe the correct patriotic act is to just blow more people up and then wear a bit of plastic and paper for two weeks and then generally forget about them. Labour leader and besuited Stoke Jeremy Corbyn urged in an interview before the Remembrance Day Memorial for more to be done to help veterans suffering from PTSD, which is a big problem for many as they try to readjust to a normal life. Trauma, mental health issues and finance issues affect quite a lot of those who leave the armed forces. And last year, 2,500 former soldiers were imprisoned, with a disproportionate amount being for violent or sexual offences. Many others take up substance abuse or alcoholism every year, and there are thought to be over 7,000 homeless vets in the UK. And that is veterans, not animal doctors, just to clarify, because I think a lot of animal doctors have homes, judging by how much it costs to get a cat jabbed with vaccines. I mean, I don't just mean jabbing a cat. If you want to just jab a cat, then you should be arrested, because cats don't deserve that. I mean, cats do deserve that, but, you know, anyway... The charity Combat Stress, who work with veterans with mental health issues, say the only reason that things are improving for former soldiers with PTSD is because there are so many affected by it that more people know about it and can talk about it. How depressing is that? PTSD has had to become popular before anyone decided to deal with it. Not unlike fascism, I suppose. Or onesies. At the moment, the only real support comes from charities rather than any government funding, so in a way, your poppy is helping soldiers a lot more than the MOD that sent them to fight in the first place. It's incredible that the Ministry of Defence are quite happy to combat enemies, but not any problems soldiers may face at home when they return. Corbyn called in his statement for the MOD to provide more support on decision-making and housing as well as counselling if needed. And the Ministry of Defence have not responded yet to Corbyn's ask, but chances are they won't bother, and instead they'll be happy just wearing a poppy, you know, like a real patriot. 
Do you remember in last week's podcast where I mentioned several times about how Parliament needed an HR department like other real workplaces? Do you remember that all that week ago when those stories of sexual harassment happened, which were way before Boris Johnson said something else fucking stupid and Pretty Patel did something else also awful? Do you remember those things? Well, anyway, I mentioned that on the podcast and then just as I loaded up that episode to reach your ears, I saw the news that the various party leaders had mutually agreed to introduce a new complaints procedure, including face-to-face human resources support. So while this backs up my theory that I tell no one and I don't actually believe in that the government have hacked my computer and steal all my best ideas, it does also mean part of the show was out of date before you even heard it. Well, to be fair, it wasn't that out of date because none of those things have been implemented yet and they won't be for at least a year because, hey, why the rush, right? I mean, surely those victims of sexual harassment can wait another excruciatingly long and upsetting amount of time before anyone gives a shit, right? There will be an upgrade to the existing parliamentary complaints hotline by the end of November, though, a line that is dealt with in-house at Parliament, which sounds bad, but it's not by MPs, so that sounds slightly better. But all of this is not really enough, and Labour have called for an independent body to deal with complaints and who have the power to report allegations to the police. And the Green Party's Caroline Lucas said there should be a training programme to educate MPs on consent. I mean, imagine that. MPs actually understanding that they should see if people want things before they do them to them. I'm pretty sure the Department of Work and Pensions would vanish overnight. And while, as I've now said 15 times in this bit, this is not enough, there is a cross-party consensus to do more. So hopefully Parliament is making steps to being a little bit more up-to-date with how the rest of the world works. And that'd be great, even if it means my podcasts are likely to be a week behind as a result. Brexit, Trump, the rise of fascism, the Jumanji sequel. What do all of those have in common? Yes, that's right, the lingering feeling that none of them should have happened, but somehow they did. And as a remoning liberal anti-fascist fan of the late great Robin Williams, I often struggle with the idea that all of those things happened simply because that's how public opinion is now, believing instead that there must be something more to it than there are just a lot of awful people out there who really think somehow it'll all be just as good even though now it's a computer game and Jack Black is in it. Oh, fuck off. Well, apart from Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, for which there is absolutely no hope, the others, Brexit Trump and the neo-Nazis, it turns out may be down to something other than just a lot of awful humans. Yes, that's right, it looks like it's down to just some awful humans and they're bots, as in robots, not bottoms. Thanks to some excellent investigations, it's been unveiled recently that the connections are many between Russia, Trump and his campaign, Sick Bucket with the Face Nigel Farage, the Leave campaign, Cambridge Analytica, Psychometrics and your crappy Facebook profile with far too many pictures of you on a holiday no one cares about. There are many funding footprints and digital traces that suggest this was all far more coordinated by those with an interest in disruption than just the world collectively deciding to be an unreasonable dick. Now look, I'm not going to lie, I find it all quite hard to wrap my head around the detail of this and I've spent most of my time reading about Cambridge Analytica and the data trail and big data and the Miller investigation, mostly just badly humming the theme tune to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy while taking none of it in. But someone who is firmly on the case is James Patrick. Now, if you've been listening to his show since the beginning, you might remember when I spoke to James back in episode 39 about when he whistle blew on the Met Police fiddling crime stats. And that really is worth a listen if you want to get a background on James before you hear this chat. But James has now turned his knowledge of data analysis and investigatory skills to journalism. And he's been following the trail of what he calls the alternative war since earlier this year, writing many articles for Byline and releasing his second book called Alternative War in August. 
So I asked James if he could explain exactly what that is all about, whether we've all been duped and we should just throw our computers in the bin to stop the Nazis, and if Putin has anything at all to do with Jumanji 2, because really, how else could you explain it? Why would they do it? OK, I didn't really ask him that, but I, I wanted to. What I will say before we get to the chat is that if you're a listener who's not come across any of this story in any articles so far by either James or, as we mentioned, Carol Cadwallader in The Guardian or a number of others, then I just want to reassure you that so much evidence has been found out about what James refers to as the international conglomeration of fuck nuggets, or perhaps you might read it as the trail of dark money, that this is hugely important stuff with potentially politics and country changing results. So what I hope is that this interview is a sort of gateway drug to you reading up more on all of it. Oh, also, uh, James's Skype line goes a little bit funny a couple of times, um, which uh, you can just assume is thanks to hackers because we're saying dangerous things. Um, and also, I keep referring to Carol Cadwallader as Caroline Cadwallader because I'm an idiot and I hadn't had enough tea by the time we spoke. Anyway, this is the alternative war. Sorry, I just wanted to say that. <clears throat> and here is James. Well, I think first question um, is uh, for the listeners and, and for myself, really, um, even though I've, I've read your book, but it still uh, slightly goes over my head. What is uh, a hybrid threat and what is an alternative war? OK, um, basically, a, a hybrid uh, threat is um, it's not traditional warfare. Um, when we think of warfare, we think of bullets and guns and people sort of attacking us with bombs and stuff like that. A hybrid threat is a little bit different because what it uses, and this is going back to a NATO definition from 2010, when they started this really cool sounding thing called the Capstone Project, um, is basically it's, it's a threat or a method of warfare which involves, rather than bullets and bombs, disinformation, hacking and attacks on multiple social levels of society. So that's what a hybrid threat is. A hybrid conflict um, or a hybrid war, which I call an alternative war because it fits in with alternative facts and scoops in some of the characters like the alt-right, um, is where a hybrid threat develops into a full-fronted war involving multiple actors and assets who are attacking a common enemy um, in a variety of different ways. So in, it can be anything from discrediting the media by calling it fake news to creating disinformation channels to hacking to leaking to smear campaigns against political candidates who stand against what they stand for um, and that's combined with other aspects which are non-diplomatic maneuvers like uh, say for example in ukraine they used all of these different things and then there was a direct military annexation of, of a part of um, crimea so that's basically what an alternative war is. And it comes in stages and different bits. So it's completely interchangeable, bolt-on, really complex, but deeply technological and psychological war all mangled in together. And is it, I mean, because obviously this is a very, very recent thing. I mean, this is something that's only been, uh, I think you mentioned in your book, but within 10 years, we've maybe been seeing the beginnings of this. Um, yeah. Can it, I mean, you, you call it a war. Can it have the same effects as a war? Can it be as damaging? It can be even more damaging as a war. Um, and the, yeah, so let's, the origins of it, I think they first picked it up in um, Middle East conflicts back in the late 2000s. Um, and by 2010, uh, NATO had actually gotten their heads together and they developed this strategy to counter these hybrid efforts. 
Um, and this all kicked off with a hybrid warfare experiment in Tallinn in Estonia, which is where the Centre for Hybrid Warfare is. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a very, very real thing. And yeah, it goes back quite a while and they've been studying it and trying to develop methodologies around tackling it. But can it have an impact? Well, if, if, if you can sort of imagine warfare is incredibly expensive, I mean, it's, it's a billions and billions of dollar industry to, to buy tanks and guns and stuff like that. And very often it ends in a, a sort of stalemate or a non-result. And if you think about things like Vietnam going back years or up to Afghanistan, as we see it now, there's no resolution and there's no sort of positive outcome. A hybrid war is very, very different because the cost center is much, much lower. Um, part of it is troll farms who look at social media. And if you can imagine, there's one troll farm in, in Russia which had a budget of just £1 million a year and £200,000, I think it was a month, in advertising budget. So you're talking about a bang for buck. You can actually substantially reduce... Uh, not only the cost of war, but take out the collateral physical damage as well. So you're preserving assets. And what, what effectively happens is, because you're, you're targeting different things, you're not rolling tanks over a border. Um, you're actually convincing people to behave in ways that they normally wouldn't, like electing Trump or, uh, and, and we now know voting for Brexit was, was part and parcel of this. Um, it's the same thing in France. It's the same thing in Germany with the AFD. So it's just it's a really cheap version of warfare. And what it does, instead of um, sort of traditionally you'd then go foraging through and take over oil platforms or anything like that, um, because you've installed a candidate as part of this warfare um, or installed a sympathetic president, um, they can just then drop sanctions and increase your trade. And it's a very, very different, uh, much cleaner result. Sure. I mean, it's it's really terrifying as well. I mean, actual war is very terrifying, but this kind of thing feels like a sort of John le Carre novel um, level of terrifying. Uh, oh, God, know, yeah. So many levels uh, to it. And I mean, reading reading your book and reading many of your articles, the the ways in which things are intertwined is quite overwhelming at times. Yeah. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> There's um, the, one of the things that's sort of essential in this, um, and this actually goes back to, to a... Uh, KGB doctrine, which um, came out through a defector to Canada in the 80s, I think. Um, it's one, one of the tricks is, is that it's a long-term process rather than like a quick battle and overcome or battle and lose. And one of the, the, the big things that you need to do is harness local people, um, what, what Lenin originally allegedly referred to as useful idiots, who are people who can serve a, a purpose to, to your own purpose. So like in, in the UK, if you picked out some people who are absolutely ideal useful idiots, um, you would have people like Nigel Farage at UKIP. And they're useful in two ways. Number one, because they're popular amongst the sort of the right-leaning um, populist and nationalist sort of sides of our voting spectrum. But also they have access to the EU. And once you've, you've got one of these people on board, and it can be anything as simple as stroking an ego, or it could be a backhanded payment, or it could be having compromise on them, um, you can persuade them to act in your interests. And you can then multiply up this number of, of assets almost infinitely by targeting their own sort of networks and people like them. 
And then what you've actually got is is a sort of local arm or a local battalion fighting on your behalf. And very often they won't even know why they're doing it. It's just it's horrendously complex. And when you start to track the the connections of people like Farage across the world, um, their involvement with Russia spans to Le Pen. And previously he's connected to Julian Assange. Assange is definitely connected to Russia. I mean, he's been declared a Russian asset. Um, and you can then step across the pond to to America. And the way that Farage is connected to the Trump campaign is just bizarre. Back in 2012, out of nowhere, this little unheard of fat little right wing guy called Steve Bannon makes friends with him. Next thing, they're launching this strange little um, alternative news outlet, Breitbart, in London in 2014 to further their cultural war, um, which is what Bannon said. And then... All of a sudden, Trump's data firm, which Bannon sat on the board of, is uh, backing Levy U and Aaron Banks. And then they're back over in Mississippi doing a big data deal this year um, with a guy called uh, Phil Bryant, who's the governor of Mississippi, and setting up this company called Big Data Dolphins. It's just it's 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 such a complex web of stuff. And if you dip back into the Trump campaign, um, we know Carter Page was giving evidence in the Russia inquiry this week. We know that there's been indictments because of people's links to Russia and Russia money. Um, and you've also got Roger Stone smack bang in the middle of this. And Stone has said that sort of he had an intermediary between the Trump campaign and the DNC leaks and Julian Assange. And by all accounts, that person is Nigel Farage. So this this stuff is just endless. And even as the FBI said... Taking one party like Farage alone, no matter which way you triangulate, um, Farage comes up smack bang in the middle of the Russia inquiry. I mean, it's it's one of those things because I, what I'm I'm enjoying about reading all this, and I should say, I mean, it, as I said, it does terrify me, but I'm enjoying reading that all these people that I think of as absolutely loathsome arseholes are connected in some way, and it's not just that oh they're they're popular. No, there's some sort of, there's something else to this. But um, I, I should point out kind of for the listeners because I think some of this, and and I say this, you know, were I to come at this from an angle of not knowing you, not having read your research, some of it sounds like mad conspiracy theory stuff. I know until you it's see brilliant. all the evidence and the investigation that's gone into it by yourself and by Caroline Cadwallader and you know it's starting to mount up so could you maybe take us back and and tell us a little bit about because this started with you going to Sweden (laughs) which is a a lovely way to kind of begin what ends up with Farage being at the centre of a horrible kind of axis well yeah I mean I I, I I think instead of calling it an axis of awful um the, the easiest way that everyone needs to look at it is that we're dealing with an international conglomerate of fuck nuggets. And once we've, <laughs> once, once we've sort of established um, the, this, it, it's, it's quite easy to backtrace. Now, obviously, the start of this year, I didn't know any of this. And in fact, as I sort of I start the book out, um, which is exactly where I started out, by saying that, that I just thought the world had fallen victim um, to some gun-toting rednecks and uh, blokes who like to wear sort of pointy pillowcases on their heads. Um, And actually, as I started to sort of look into it, I found out from Carol Cadwallader's stuff at The Guardian about this hooky-sounding data company. Um, And I started to look into it, and I was like, well, this is really weird. This is Cambridge Analytica. Um, And... As I was getting more into sort of reading up on it and I started to write a couple of articles at the Common Space, I came across 
um, someone who I'd never heard of before that was just pumping out all this stuff about the rape rate in Sweden. And he's a guy called Paul Joseph Watson, who, as it turns out, he's like the editor at large of Infowars, which is a site which just produces utter cod shit. Um, so I got into into this sort of semi-argument with him um, in which he'd said he was willing to pay any journalist to go to um, Sweden to experience this horrific rape, crime and immigration crisis for themselves. Um, so as it happens, I crowdfunded um, my own trip to, to Sweden, having looked at the crime figures. And, you know, when I came on before, we know that I know stuff about crime figures. Yes, um, I should have said that to the listeners. Uh, for any of the newer listeners, we um, you explained the last time we interviewed you all about your uh, knowledge of how to measure statistics and these because, due to your history. And, in fact, listeners should all go back and listen to that. <laughs> yes, they should. Um, yeah. so, so I ended up going to Sweden and... Um, I went to Malmo, um, and this, this is uh, April this year, just after the Stockholm bomb had gone off. Um, so I, I didn't really know what I was walking into. And I ended up interviewing the deputy mayor of Malmo, one of the country's leading criminologists, um, chiefs of police, the national lead on um, community integration. And what I found out was two things, really. Um, the, the crime and immigration problem in Sweden is no worse than anywhere else. In fact, their sort of their recording standard is so high that compared to the rest of the world, it does look like there's more in the way of sexual offences. But that's a matter of the quality way in which they work. What actually came out of it um, was a, a sort of a broader understanding of the fact that the Swedish far right party was actually globally working with other far right parties um, not just in Europe, but in the States as well. And they were producing these um, far-right narratives to try and steer public discourse to up the popularity of, of, the, of what had once been classed as completely politically untouchable extremists. And also within that, I discovered that there was this sort of substantive web of, of, of links to seedy Russian activity in the Swedish Riksdag, um, which came straight from the same party. And that led me to start, well, as as RT, the Russia Today broadcaster says, start to question everything. Um, and what I found out was that it's not actually a conspiracy theory. It's just a really, really logical step progression. And all of this stuff has been public domain for a very, very long time. And all I did was sat down as an ex-copper um, uh, and took my experience in Sweden and started to piece it together and follow the news as it came up. Um, and, and what it led to is this this sort of revelation almost by the end of it, where we were looking at declassified CIA documents and joint intelligence reports from the FBI, which confirmed that Russia had actually hacked the um, the DNC database themselves and sort of handed off the, the information via what they call a circuitous route, um, to uh, Julian Assange to leak it. And this all linked back in eventually to the French election and how they tried to interfere by helping Marine Le Pen and the AFD in Germany. It's crazy, but it's true. And it's happening right under our noses. And is part of the problem, because I know you sort of mentioned Cambridge Analytica before and um, a lot of what they uh, have done or it's been reported they've done were to do with psychometrics and targeting people through their Facebook profiles and their, you know, through their personalities that way and, and what they like or how they can yeah. specifically target adverts towards them. It's very hard to, you know, uh, prove that, isn't there? It's very hard to prove that that's had an effect. 
Um, so is well, that part of the issue with all of this? Is it hard to kind of say that this is definitely what's caused these outcomes? I think I think we're going to have to take a long, hard look at ourselves as people in the future. Um, there's a, a lot of uh, study is to come out now about the impact of psychometrics and the impact of um, sort of targeted messaging and stuff like that. But here's the thing. If you look at, and I've done an experiment with this very recently for a special investigation for Byline, who I write for, I wanted to know if you could influence people, um, if you could access as many people as possible um, and influence them with a piece of information. So I designed a very, very simple infographic which said that uh, Breitbart, Infowars, Westminster was lies. Okay? Now, I used it as sort of a spare Twitter account that I have, which has 345 followers at the time. And the first thing I did was tweet on its own. And it reached like 45 people. So 45 people saw it. A couple of people responded. Um, so then what I did, I tacked it up with a couple of hashtags, which being monitored as being used by known Russian trolls. Um, and suddenly that jumps up and it reaches 1,500 people. And you get a few more replies. So people are interacting with these messages and responding to it. So what I then did was I chucked 20 quid at Twitter advertising for two days. And I went back through um, a bit of an experiment with what's called network centrality, which is where you work out who is talking about what. And I chucked 20 quid, targeted the messages at those people. By the end of two days, that message had reached over 17,000 people. And it was starting to get responses indicating that people had changed their mind about the way they were thinking about stuff. Now, <laughs> what that means is that, yeah, psychometrics does work, even at a very, very low, crude end of the spectrum. Now, what you need to bear in mind is that the targeted Facebook ads... Say, for example, um, the Senate inquiry found out there was a budget of 100,000 from, from Russian companies. You can actually reach, and this has been sort of confirmed in the Senate hearings, the whole U.S. population repeatedly. And this can actually steer voters um, to behave in certain ways, even to not vote. And there's a body of research which already exists on this. So, yeah, it is perfectly true. And actually, if it wasn't true then the Trump campaign probably wouldn't have paid Cambridge Analytica £9 million. And that sort of tells you that, that there is something in it. And actually, we need to be asking some more grown-up questions about how much influence this stuff has. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things that you've been doing quite a lot on um, social media recently as well is just kind of outing how many uh, bots there are uh, that are masquerading as kind of pro-Trump or pro-Brexit accounts yeah. still... Happen. It's, it's, it's quite terrifying how many seem to be out there and how many have quite a lot of followers. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, I've, I've looked at, I suppose, over the last, last few days, I've been running um, some new software. And, I mean, I've looked at tens of thousands of accounts. Tens of thousands of accounts. And the, the sort of the end result of this is that you can clearly see through the timestamps in this data that these... These accounts are tweeting from Moscow at Moscow office hours, or they're just manned 24 hours a day, which is impossible for a human because we need sleep. Um, and, and the amount of following that they get and the amount of retweets that they get um, is, is just it's, it's absolutely incredible. And what it means is that the, the little messages that they're pushing that would otherwise be ignored are actually driven um, 
or amplified to a point where normal people started to hear them and respond to them. Because of the way that the news works now, a lot of news comes out of what's happening on social media. So, and we can see this like from places like BuzzFeed, they pick up stuff about the Las Vegas shooting, which is coming from the disinformation networks. That's then churned back out as news. Normal people read it. Suddenly, everyone's talking about it. And that allows them, well, the, the troll operators and the bots, to push new narratives that would otherwise not have been um, heard by many people. So it's really, really clever, um, but genuinely really, really effective. And let's just go back to the... Uh... We sort of, you sort of mentioned earlier when we were talking about Farage and talking about Sweden, a lot, a lot of this, uh, you know, from, from your investigations from Caroline Cobundas and everyone else I'm talking about, you, we're saying that this is almost certain that Brexit and Trump and Russia are all now connected. Um, can you give us a bit of a, I mean, I know this is, a, this is not, we need like four hours of interview to go through all the links, but can you give the listeners kind of a bit of a, a chain of where it's come from, maybe, you know, how it's linked and why? I mean, you know, what's the reason? Is it, is it just disruption? Is it, what, what are they set to gain um, from this? Right, basically, uh, Russia, Russia's a really, really simple one. Um, because they suffer heavy sanctions, um, they've found it very, very difficult to make economic gains in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union. But through the 90s, there was a transfer period in Russia where the state and organised crime made a pact, if you will, that they were going to act together um, and sort of make some money out of it. Now, what's happened since then is they've, they've tried a number of different ways to get around sanctions, and they've done deals like Rosneft um, having huge shares sold in Qatar and some other bits and bobs, but there's always this matter of sanction and restriction, which sort of inhibits progress. So what they've done is they've turned their attentions towards how they can get into political influence of different countries as well. So obviously, um, the, the Putin regime is racist, white supremacist, anti-LGBT. Um, so they've gone and picked out people who mirror their own ideals across Europe. Um, they've loaned millions to Marine Le Pen in France. There are question marks over where UKIP's financial fortunes have turned around. Um, they've done the same in Sweden. They've done the same in uh, Germany. Um, and at the same time, they also assist them in different ways. Um, it, people, I'm sure, will have heard all the kerfuffle this week about Alex Salmon having a TV show on RT. RT in itself is actually a real problem because, as we know from the US Senate inquiry and from the CIA documents and from a, a manner of other stuff which has been released, RT is actually a part of um, Russia's foreign office operation. So it's an espionage wing of the government. And its entire purpose, in the own words of the, the editor-in-chief, is to produce the content they're ordered to by the Kremlin in order to persuade foreign audiences to take a Russian view. So you combine all this together and you've suddenly got all these people and they're appearing on RT and sort of normalising these different narratives that we would otherwise not have heard. So this is all going on and this is like the really insidious bit which has crept up over time. You've then got um, the relationship between the GOP and Russia which is extremely complicated. But it's basically to do with vast amounts of money. For example, uh, 
Paul Marifor, American lobbyist who was indicted the other week, he has been taking over the years millions and millions of pounds um, for lobbying the US government uh, in Russian interests. And that's been laundered back into the States. So vast sums of money. And what happens then is they pick out a candidate who's likely to succeed or could achieve some change that they would like. So, for example, Trump in America um, or the Leave EU campaign, which on its own probably wouldn't have achieved a lot. But we know because of Carol's work that they actually were tied in with the official Vote Leave campaign through Cambridge Analytica and another company called Aggregate IQ. Um, we know that Cambridge Analytica are dodgy as sin, um, but, but though they continually deny it, we even know now that they have gone um, and actually approached Julian Assange for the Hillary leaked emails. And what's happened is these backed candidates over a period of time have started to work and interact with these different companies and different arms and in very, very different ways. But every sort of piece of the puzzle links back to the, the, the arms of them, which are linked to the, the Russian sort of foreign policy effort. I'm trying to explain just hundreds of thousands of words in a really short space of time. And it is incredibly difficult. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And we'll be back with James in a minute, but first, the return this week of... Brexit 
It's EU withdrawal bill debate time. Get your favourite EU law that you'd like to see repealed into UK law hat on. Mine is a cap that says Article 69 on it, not only because it sounds rude, but also because it's the extent of protection law, part of the European Patent Convention, and that also sounds rude when added to the 69 bit. 69, extent of protection, win. <clears throat> but you know what the EU withdrawal bill is, right? You know, the one that was the great repeal bill and then just the repeal bill, and is generally just getting sadder and more depressing with each iteration of its name until at the end of the next eight days of debate it'll probably just be referred to as the oh fuck there's so much to do all of this is such a mess bill the idea is that this bill will transfer all EU laws onto domestic statute by the time we leave, but as I've wanged on so many times on this podcast, the second reading of the bill passed despite containing a clause that will essentially allow the government powers to pass legislation without any scrutiny from Parliament. So one minute it's all Article 69, hardy ha. The next is, hey, we've taken the EU clean air policy package and we've changed it to all cabinet ministers get gas masks and oxygen supplies and the rest of you can get fucked. So, you know, that's done now. So, to summarise a bit, the week and a bit of debate that's about to happen is to go through all the amendments in all the six different clauses, except Clause 5, because fuck that one, and work out what's what before voting on the amendments, reading it again, and then passing it to the House of Lords, by which point it'll probably be the year 2025, and we'll all realise that we've been without planes, food or hospital staff for six years, and outside the Commons everything's like Mad Max. So that all starts on Tuesday, i.e. the day this podcast comes out and jumps in your ears. But what has happened before that that I can talk about is that Brexit Secretary David Davis has said that the government have conceded on giving Parliament a vote on the final Brexit deal, which May wouldn't guarantee back in October. Something that is completely bonkers when you think the government could just push through any old deal without any parliamentary consent. So this concession shows that they're now running a bit scared, as the government know that if they didn't offer this vote to MPs, chances are Labour and Rebel Tory MPs would vote down other elements of the EU withdrawal bill and hinder the government's plans if they have any, which I'm still not sure that they do. But, and this is a big old but of the Sir Mix-a-Lot liking kind, the vote the government are offering MPs is only a take-it-or-leave-it deal, meaning if they don't want to vote for the only deal given, they have to accept a no deal. Yeah, what a super shit concession, right? You can either eat this possibly shit-filled sandwich, or you can have no sandwich, but there's no way you can say, hey, why can't we have a sandwich with cheese in it, and whose shit is that in the sandwich? Is it yours? Oh, God. Oh, God, this is wrong. But Davis did say the government will agree to any votes on substantive primary legislation, which means MPs should be able to amend the bill before it becomes law, before they then have to vote on it. Hooray! The potential of a shit and cheese sandwich! But then David Davis also responded to a query from the Lib Dems about what happens if a bill is only finalised last minute, before the March 29th deadline, and he said that could happen, and then MPs would have to vote afterwards, which is like saying, we don't want this shit and cheese sandwich, after having eaten two-thirds of a shit and cheese sandwich. And then everyone's least favourite angry thumb, Ian Duncan-Smith, asked, hey, what would happen if the amendment went against the deal negotiated with the EU? And ah, the answer is basically ah, ah. The next few days are going to be interesting, or more likely, are interesting. Especially if the next few days force votes on the power-grabbing Henry VIII clause or shadow Brexit Secretary Keir Starmer's amendment to stay in the single market during the two-year post, both of which could really fuck things up for the government but make things better for everybody else, unless you think like the government think, in which case you will be sad, but if you don't think like the government think, then you will be happy. Get it? Got it? Ah! 
Meanwhile, leading up to this, one of the amendments Theresa May wants in the EU withdrawal bill is for the date and time of Brexit to be set on the bill as a fixed in-law departure point. Something that really makes me want to sneak into Parliament and move all the clocks forward five minutes so that they all get a criminal record at 11.05 on March 29th. But in response to this, the man who drafted Article 50, Lord Kerr, has said that Article 50 is reversible even after Brexit, even if the date of leaving is set in stone. And by it being reversible, he doesn't just mean you'll be allowed to say 05 El Citra on March the 30th. Though I will, anyway, because it sounds fun. But Kerr has said that the Article 50 treaty has lots of options, including seeking extra time for negotiations and even taking back the Article 50 letter that was sent to EU President and Niles in Polish Fraser, Donald Tusk. Though who knows how many darts you might have to pull out of it first. So reversing Article 50 remains an option if absolutely all else fails which would be following this government's fine tradition if it did. And hey, there's nothing more British than following a tradition based in failure. Eh, Guy Fawkes? Look at me, topical as ever. Environmental Secretary and undefeated all-time winner of most punchable face in politics, Michael Gove, announced that he is planning an environmental watchdog to protect wildlife, land, water and air post-Brexit. Although it has to be a pretty big dog to check all those things all the time. Is it Clifford, the big red dog? Because colour-wise, he's probably more useful to the opposition. Some of Gove's proposals seem pretty good, though, and I readily actually cheered his announcement that he would back a total UK ban on bee-harming pesticides, as flying insects are in huge decline, especially bees. And neonicotinoids, aka bee-harming pesticides, are said to be a cause of this decline, as, well, it definitely isn't windscreens doing all the work anymore, is it? But that cheer didn't last very long, because I was schooled on Facebook by two of you lovely listeners, Emma and Kat, this ban on neonicotinoids could mean reverting back to the last legal product allowed for use instead, which I are organophosphates, which affect even more insects. And so once again, we might have another flawed government idea that involves saying, hey, let's save the bees by then killing the ants, beetles and flies instead. Although to be fair, none of them are as furry as bees. You can't really stroke an ant, can you? Gove did also say that his plan is that he wants to see species which have been on the verge of extinction and endangered returned. Which, if nothing else, does explain why he's still backing Theresa May as leader, despite everything. And now... Back to James. Sure, well, this is what I mean, is it's such a complex kind of web of, of yeah. the connections. And I mean, th- this past weekend, um, which I think even the Daily Mail reported, but there's, you know, there's now shown that there's collusions between Boris Johnson and uh, the uh, Russian professor that George Papadopoulos met to find the dirt on Hillary, you know. Th- so yeah. it's, it, this, it, it goes really deep. And I mean, if we are, you know, if, if all of this... Uh, is able to be used as evidence of all of this kind of comes out, then I guess it really puts into question what's happened in all of our politics for the last two years and if any of it can be counted as valid. Well, yeah, and this is this is the problem. I mean, one of the the, the, the sort of the key questions that, that we're going to have to face up to at some point is, is, uh, is Trump's election legitimate? Um, I think in the US they're going to find out very quickly that they have to declare... It wasn't. And 45 will be the shortest lived and most controversial president in the history of the United States. Um, the, the sort of the, the question that we're going to end up facing here and Britain has this long history of this stiff upper lip crap, which means that we're, we're always like, no, no, everything's fine. We're Britain um, where we have to actually sit down and have a grown up conversation about the legitimacy of Brexit and actually whether this just bizarre act of national harry curry is um 
is is in itself really the will of the people. And I don't think we can honestly say hand on heart at the moment that, that it was. There are too many questions. And the economic suicide, which is sort of unravelling before us, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, so... I'm not sure we're, we're, we're grown up enough to have that conversation in Britain, which is sad. Whereas Germany and France, they faced up to it straight away. They faced up to it during the election. Um, and you look at the posturing of Merkel and Macron and the way that the EU has brought itself together and publicly acknowledged that there is a Russian threat and it is affecting them. And it's affecting them in numerous different ways, including the drive of... Um, uh, uh, war-torn immigration traffic through Turkey into the EU, which is another deliberate disruptor, but that's an entirely different topic. Um, it's it, it's crazy. And these conversations are going to come up at some point, but I don't think Britain is, is a grown-up enough country to have that conversation in Parliament in its current format. And, I mean, you mentioned that, that you think Trump will be, like, his presidency will be very short. Um, obviously, there's the Robert Mueller investigations there. Um, you mentioned France and Germany have kind of tackled with it. Are, are, is this kind of reaching a point in, in kind of uh, government consciousness now that you feel that it's, it's something that more countries are going to be tackling and that they've kind of putting prevention systems in place? Um, well, I mean, we know, for example, that um, there, there's a big military um, exercise which takes place every year called ZAPAD. Um, that's just happened in Europe. And within that, they included all their cyber penetration testing, a number of tests as to what would happen if the power grids get knocked out, which just to scare the hell out of people, that is actually a piece of software the Russians have and they have used on repeat. Um, the, 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 the thing is, the US government will respond to this um, because they have this sort of tripartite mechanism whereby the president alone cannot be left to be corrupt. That's one of the few things that they 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 fixed when they sort of got the constitution right and kicked us out. Um, the, the rest of Europe is going to be just fine. Um, I'm not sure NATO will survive um, because of the posturing of uh, the US and the UK, which is quite deliberate. Um, in terms of the UK, we don't have that mechanism. There is no overarching um, sort of control of Parliament. There's no there's no effective control of Parliament in any way, shape, or form. So I don't think we are going to see a response here. And interestingly, there's a lot of stuff which keeps coming up. Um, it was only a, a couple of weeks ago that GCHQ, who are the guys that should have stopped this in England, were actually being taken to court for sharing our data with third parties. Um, now, obviously, that was a secret court hearing. But if our spies are gathering the biggest data set in the world and sharing it with other people, um, including universities, which we also know were hacked by Russia, who was specifically seeking data from them, um, it, it, it's a bit telling as to exactly how deep our predicament is. And. You, 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 sort of, uh, you, you mentioned to me before we started interviewing that you've met with uh, the Conservative MP Damien Collins this weekend um, as part of the, was it Media and Culture Select Committee? Uh, oh, not, not met with him. Um, got oh, you did meet with him. him. Right, OK, yeah, so you've been yeah. in touch with him. And so yeah. they're obviously looking into it, but they're looking into it from just the social media point of view, are they? Or... OK, so um, what we do have here, we've got, um, there's one MP called Ben Bradshaw, who is actually actively calling for an inquiry into whether Russia interfered in Brexit. And he is actually really all over this. He's, he's really very clued up. Um, 
obviously I've been I've been doing my bit for months before I wrote a book. Um, I actually put a 70 page statement into two of our select committees, uh, the FBI, <laughs> um, NATO and a couple of people at the EU. Um, so th- there are people trying all the time. We've obviously got the Electoral Commission who are running a number of inquiries into this and the Information Commissioner's Office as well. So just to give you a bit of background before I talk to you about the the Culture and Media Committee, at the moment, we've got a couple of sort of lonely MPs raising the issue and not getting very far. And we're effectively, um, as a nation, trying to respond to what is uh, apparently an act of war with a system of um, civil fines for the misuse of data, which is pathetic. So Damien Collins um, has, as chair of the Culture and Media Select Committee, been uh, monitoring things. And obviously, he's been looking at um, the Senate inquiry, which has roped in Facebook and Twitter and sort of exposed them and their dark heart. So one of the things he's done, he's written to Twitter and demanded a list of Russian accounts they know about that were posting Brexit stuff. So over the weekend, um, I reached out to Damien via Twitter And I've emailed him and sort of set out to him that there's a substantive amount of evidence which says that, yes, we did have a a Russian problem during Brexit and there were bots and there's a boatload of evidence for it. In fact, more evidence came out through um, the online uh, outlet Wired at the weekend. Um, And I'm going to let him digest it because I appreciate it's a lot to take in. But the the crux of it is, again... um, it's just it's a single angle approach it's it was a social media company naughty in letting people tweet bad things um without going to the depth that it's going to need to go to to say actually a foreign state actor attacked our population during the most important referendum um or, or potentially our history um and we responded to it by saying well that was a bit naughty delete the tweets so there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff which comes over the next few months, I would imagine. Definitely. And, and I mean, is there something then, because I, I know that, again, you're, you're encouraging or you have been encouraging people on Twitter to kind of report bots and block them and things, but is it something that generally people can do to help with any of this? And I mean, and what if people aren't that active on social media? Does that mean it's not affecting them or is there something else that they should be <laughs> trying well, to tackle? The, on, on social media, the, the, the simple lessons really are Um, If you see something and you think it's a bot or a troll, um, don't engage with it, because part of what it's doing, it's trying to harness network centrality, which just means it's going to push its message through your network because of the way that algorithms work. So don't interact with it. Just block it and report it as spam. Or if you think it's an actual physical person managing the account, report it as hacked and Twitter will sort it out. Um, But what you're doing piece by piece by doing it that way is uh, shutting down the signal amplification, which is what they rely on. Um, in terms of uh, Facebook, I stay the hell away from Facebook. It is um, significantly worse than Twitter and has more of a psychological steer impact on people. Um, so my advice would be, um, if you're going to use Facebook, just do it to voice your domestic arguments, which is pretty much what it should be there for. In respect of, does it have an impact off social media? Um I'd suggest that anyone who doubts that social media has an impact on the world that we see uh, Googles the phrase uh, Donald Trump Twitter and then flicks to the news tab 
because it's a really, really simple example of the fact that what happens on social media is headline news all over the world. And as a result of it, it does change the 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 whole nature of public discourse. And in fact, if you look at a couple of the Tory MPs in this country, um, in respect of Brexit discussions, they are gauging, uh, in some cases, like IDS, um, for example, the will of the people on the basis of what they are seeing on Twitter. So if we are actually getting a policy response as well as a news response to social media. So if people want to dismiss it, um, it would be a very, very foolhardy thing to do. Um, but we do need to have separate discussions about the state of the media and media bias in the UK, um, which, again, are discussions for another day. They're no less relevant, but they are slightly different. Sure. And I'm, and I'm guessing, uh, again, not to go into that now, but it, it, part of that is that how much information they gain from Twitter and how much they, you know, the, the lack of money in journalism that means investigations aren't being carried out fully. Well, it, exactly, exactly. I mean, one of, one of the things, I mean, I mean, if, if anybody reads my stuff at Byline, um, my articles sort of run in the region of three to 4,000 words. Um, there is no way on God's green earth you will start seeing that in newspapers again because news has um, sort of become almost decanted, really, to to a level where newspapers have to try and condense everything to 500 words and everything is competing all of the time. So there's this big translation issue as well. And again, this is something which has been exploited by the alternative news outlets. Um, the, the other reason it's been exploited is because the alternative news outlets are not bound by the regulations of Impress, like me or Ofcom or anything else. They can write and print what they like and there is absolutely no control over editorial content. So I think in the wake of phone hacking and stuff like that, British media has become really cautious, but at the same time increasingly irresponsible because stuff like the Daily Mail, it just plays to its own demographic. And a lot of the time that is very, very um, well reflected in the conversations that people have around things. However, now, for example, we've seen the Mail on Sunday talking about the fact that Russia did have a hand in Brexit and they ran a series of articles this week. It's likely that segments of the community are going to start to change um, their own sort of discourse around it. So it's going to be interesting. Definitely. Um, and on that note, um, obviously, uh, if the listeners want to sponsor your uh, journalism, um, how can they do that? Oh, um, it, you, you go to Byline, um, click the – or find one of my articles on the front page or click on the um, search button and search JJ Patrick. Or you can go to jjpatrick.com and there's – uh, I think one of my pages is called support. Alternatively, just buy Alternative War. Um, it's It was a crowdfunded book. It was done in the public interest uh, with Byline Media. Um, it's funded by real people and real readers and um, – yeah, it's there. And I mean, even I've got to make a living, so it's not going to hurt you to buy it and read it. <laughs> and, um, and apart from yourself, is there anyone else that you could recommend the listeners check out if they want to find out more about this? Was it Coalition of Fuck Nuggets? Is that what we're calling it officially now? Um, uh, in, international <laughs> Conglomerate of Fuck Nuggets is what in, they are. International Conglomerate of Fuck Nuggets, I apologise. Um, so is there anyone else that you'd recommend that people uh, follow or read up on as well to get uh, an even uh, Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, obviously, Carol Cadwallader at The Guardian, um, Absolutely phenomenal reporting on this. 
Um, oh God, trying to think. You, you sort of, it, it's going to be a matter of dipping in. Um, there is a great guy over in New York called Professor David Carroll, who I think is Prof Carroll on the internet. Um, he is uh, taking on Cambridge Analytica from the United States end. Um, the, the, there are endless amounts. Start with me, Carol, and David, and the rest of it will sort of flow into place. And obviously, if you want to have a poke around in the dodgier side of Levy U's funding, um, a, a massive shout out to the people at Open Democracy um, who have been doing some sterling work there. Thank you to James for the interview this week. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at J underscore Ames P and his book Alternative War, which I really, really enjoyed and also was terrified by, uh, is available from all them bookshop places where they do the books, but not bookies, as that's different. Why won't you learn? Um, you can also check out James's article and sponsor his journalism work on byline.com. Uh, and do check out episode 39, where we speak more about James's past as a Met Police analyst as well, as that was an absolutely fascinating chat. Um, as James recommended too, do check Check out Carol Cadwallader's, um, not Caroline Cadwallader, as I kept saying. I'm such an idiot. Uh, do check out her investigations too. Uh, and she's on Twitter at Carol, C-A-R-O-L-E, uh, Cadwallader, C-A-D. W-A-L-L-A and her articles are in The Guardian and also David Carroll who is on Twitter at Prof Carroll and that's two R's and two L's on that um, and what you shouldn't do is follow anyone with a union jack for a profile pic and a username that's followed by more numbers than a Euro Millions draw as it's very likely they're a bot which is short either for robot or bottom and it's often very hard to tell based on their content. Uh, also do go back to episode 47 where I interviewed Leslie Hallam who is director of the Psychology of Advertising course at Lancaster University and he told me uh, a lot about what psychometrics and psychographics can do if you'd like more information on that as well. Right, who else do you want me to talk to? What other subjects should I interview people about? Um, I've had some great suggestions recently from Emma, Annie, Leo, Emma, another one, and Kat, and I'm trying to sort things out from all of those. Um, and also, I got James back this week, thanks to a few of you asking me uh, to get him back too, which is really appreciated. But please keep those suggestions coming. And you can do that by dropping me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can pray to the ancient Greek god Hermes to deliver your message and he'll send one of those shit vans and fail to drop it off because no one was in when they didn't bother ringing the doorbell. You know Hermes was the god's messenger and also the divine trickster. It's so depressing that a deity worked out the meanest trick they could play on humans is just not to specify exactly what time between nine and six. Oh look, definitely just email me. It's much, much easier. And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. And please do spread the word about the show on all your social medias to real people or even your favourite Russian bots. I mean, come on, let's use those algorithms for good, people. Well, my good, anyway. And please do review the show on iTunes or your podcast app of preference. And if you can, please also do donate to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro account for a one-off thingy. Big thank you to ACAST for hosting the show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all of the music. He's currently doing some shows in Australia, in Sydney and Melbourne, so go see him there if you're not too busy enjoying the summer, you utter bastards. God, I'm so cold. Um, this show will be back next week when David Davis will have assured Parliament that OK, they can have a vote on a choice of final Brexit deals, but one of those choices is a booby prize that means all they get is a cabbage and he won't say which one. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Pretty Patel Holidays, the official holiday company for meeting officials on holiday. PPH, for when you really need a work from rest. 
My name's Dave Pickering, and I'm an award-winning podcast maker. You may have heard me featured on Radio 4 or see me in The Guardian. I'm known for making intimate and personal work, both as a storyteller and as an in-conversation podcaster. A couple of years ago, I decided to turn all of that on its head and together with my partner, Jenny Adamthwaite, began creating a magical realist podcast drama series called The Family Tree, which blurs the line between fantasy and reality. Season one began with the character of me interviewing a family about the mysterious circumstances surrounding a death. But slowly, it took us in different and often very surprising directions. Season two is now well underway, and to be honest, it's hard to tell you much about it without giving you all kinds of spoilers. What I can tell you is that it mixes together fiction and non-fiction through drama, comedy, conversation, mystery, confession, history and culture. And it includes interviews with real people from podcasting, media, politics, science, religion and the arts. Real-life guests have included Helen Zoltzman, Nikesh Shukla and Marlo Mack, creator of the podcast How To Be A Girl. The Family Tree explores themes around identity, family, change and belief. And it contains brilliant performances by super talented people from a broad range of performance backgrounds, including stand-up, acting and spoken word. The Family Tree is difficult to categorise, but reference points include Sense8, Ghostwatch, S-Town, Leftovers, The Bright Sessions and WTF with Mark Maron. We recommend starting at the beginning of season one for the full experience, but you could also jump into season two without getting too lost. You can find out more about the show at thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk and you can listen to it there through Apple Podcasts or through any of the other online podcast directories. So join me for one of the strangest stories that I've ever told. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.